0: So when the Hebrew Bible ends, the Persians are the dominant world power. And this is important because at this point, there are Jews scattered all over the world. The Jews of the 10 northern tribes of Israel were scattered like all over the place. No telling where they ended up by the they were scattered by the Assyrians. And the Jews of Jerusalem and Judah, the the, tri- the tribes down there in the South, were carted off kind of in big groups to Babylon. And there they became part of the Persian culture. Many of them lived not only in Babylon, but also in Susa, which was another major capital at the time within the Persian empire. So some Jews were able to escape captivity altogether, and they migrated south to communities in Egypt. This is what happened to Jeremiah and Baruch, remember? And 70 years later, after the end of the Babylonian exile, Cyrus the Great of Persia allowed any Jews who wished to to return from Babylon or Susa or wherever back to Jerusalem. And there they rebuilt the temple under Joshua and Zerubbabel, and then later rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. So that's like how the Bible ended, uh, the Hebrew Bible ended. There's, there's another important community of Jews just north of Jerusalem in Samaria. Um, that's the city that used to, be, used to be the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And do you remember that troublemaker, Sanballat, who was governor of Samaria during the time that Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem? Well, according to Josephus, um, an ancient historian, one of Sanballat's daughters married a high-ranking priest in Jerusalem, a priest named Manasseh. And the elders of Israel, told Manasseh he'd have to divorce his foreign Samarian wife or give up the priesthood. So Manasseh went to his father-in-law, Governor Sanballat, in Samaria. And Sanballat built his son-in-law Manasseh, his own temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, and made him high priest there. And many of the other priests who had married foreign wives also came to join Manasseh at the new temple in Samaria. Mount Gerizim, if you remember, is a super important mountain in Jewish history. It's one of the two mountains overshadowing the town of Shechem, the place of choosing. Way back in Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites that when they took the promised land, Half of them were to stand on Mount Gerizim and shout out all the blessings that would come to them if they trusted the Lord as their God and protector. And the other half of the people were to stand on Mount Ebal and shout out all the horrible destruction that would come upon them if they rejected their God. It was like an object lesson. So they would remember this before, just as they were entering the promised land before anything else had happened to them. So for the Samaritans to build their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, just a few miles from Jerusalem, and then to allow renegade priests to minister there, caused a huge schism within the Jewish communities of Judea. So with all of this shuffling around, by the end of the Hebrew Bible, we have several good-sized communities of Jews. The Jews in Persia, who are mostly settled in Babylon and Susa. The Jews in Judea, split between those worshiping at the temple in Samaria and those worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews in various places in Egypt. And all of these communities are in contact with each other via letter and messenger. What we do not have is the 12 tribes of Israel. There are no tribes anymore. There are families of Jews, and some still identify as being of priestly lineage, and some can still tell you which tribe they were from. But at this point, you can have a tribe from the family of Benjamin, say, living in any of these various community clusters or scattered anywhere else in the known world. So, we need to be thinking in terms of Jewish communities or families now, not tribes, and certainly not a nation. The Hebrew Bible ends around 400 BCE. And between 332 and 323, in, within 10 years, Alexander conquers the Persians and builds a massive Greek empire from Macedonia in the West all the way to India in the East and south to Egypt. It cracks me up that virtually all the cities he establishes are named Alexandria something, as you can see on this map. The important one for our story is this one, Alexandria on the coast of Egypt. This Alexandria becomes a huge center of scholarship and houses the most famous library of the ancient world. Unfortunately, the library burns to the ground during an attack by Julius Caesar in 48 BCE, and the world loses all those incredibly important ancient manuscripts. But in our story of the Maccabees, it is still a huge bustling city with a large and well-respected Jewish community. Another important thing to know is that the Jews in Egypt build a couple of temples for themselves, Now, these are much farther from Jerusalem than the Samaritan temple, and they aren't built on what might be considered holy ground to the Jews of Jerusalem. So these Egyptian temples don't cause quite as much of a flap. But there is concern that the Jews in Egypt might not be following all the commandments of God. There are a couple of letters at the beginning of Second Maccabees where the Jews in Jerusalem urge the Jews in Egypt to be diligent in their observances. After Alexander the Great's untimely death, his empire is split among his generals, who make themselves kings of various regions. As we saw in class 72, when we covered Daniel chapter 11, which looked forward through this whole intertestamental period, um, those those prophecies look forward there. So this is this, is the time that Daniel was describing. This is a time of great upheaval in the world. There are constant wars and shifting alliances, but the main players are Macedonia, Thrace, the Seleucids, whose capital is Antioch Syria, and whose rulers are often called Antiochus something or other, and the Ptolemies, who are the current pharaohs in Egypt. Things are so fluid that for a time, Egypt even has a toehold in Thrace. It's just like these guys are all fighting each other. By the time the story of the Maccabees opens, the Romans are also beginning to make their presence known. Poor little Judea in the middle changes hands frequently. But by the time of the Maccabees, it is governed by the Seleucids. The world continues. In a state of uneasy truces and frequent wars. Zerubbabel's temple still stands in Jerusalem, but it remains a disappointingly small shadow of the former glory of Solomon's temple. And on top of that, the glory of the Lord was never seen re entering this new temple. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord leave the first temple during the exile. But no one has seen it return to the second temple. The Ark of the Covenant was stolen long ago by Nebuchadnezzar, so the Holy of Holies is empty. And with nothing to set it apart as special anymore, this leaves the temple vulnerable to challenge from rival temples such as the one a few miles away in Samaria. Nevertheless, there are still priests and daily sacrifices in Jerusalem. Without a king or even a judge, it is the priests, especially the high priest, who is recognized by both the Jews and the Seleucid kings as the de facto leader of the Jews. And that brings up a really important point. Before the exile, the Jews had a king as the political leader of their nation. The high priest was a leader, certainly, but he was there to help the people draw near to God. Now, however, the Jews have no king to speak for them politically. As the face of the Jews, so to speak, the high priest now has to answer to two masters, Yahweh and the Seleucid king. This is not good. Not good at all. Remember Hasatan, the Satan, the word that means the adversary in Hebrew? Remember how we only saw the tiniest hints of him in the Hebrew Bible, which may themselves have been cultural overlays from the Persian period when those particular passages were written? And remember Asmodeus from the book of Tobit, which was written during this period? And remember how we looked at Angra Mainu in the Persian religion of Zoroastrianism? Well, those Persian roots have flourished, During this intertestamental period, the whole idea of spirits and demons and angels and spiritual fights between good and evil forces is finding its way deeper and deeper into the consciousness and theology of the Jews. And that makes some sense to me. The Jews have had everything taken from them. The Messiah hasn't come. God's immediate presence as a protecting force seems to have disappeared. I can understand how these ideas of wars between good spirits and bad spirits would give some comfort when you're feeling as jerked around as these people are, especially when God seems far away. In his book, From the Maccabees to the Mishnah, Shay Cohen confirms that it is during this time period in the third and second centuries BCE that Satan emerges as a clearly defined being in Jewish theology, along with myriads of angelic hosts to fight against the forces of darkness and evil. So I want you to watch for this, especially in the passages from 2 Maccabees. A natural extension of this belief is that illnesses are symptoms of possession by a hostile power. So medical care often takes the form of exorcisms. You'll find this discussion on pages 80 and 82 of Cohen's book. At the same time, the prophets are completely absent. Malachi was the last one. There have been no more. Just as David predicted, God seems to stop sending prophets to the people. As a result, I think people begin to focus on the end times and on looking for the promised Messiah. Apocalypses, that, that new genre that Daniel started, apocalypses have become very popular. Many, many ap- apocalypses are written and are circulated. Cohen points out they don't, that the people who write the apocalypses don't come to the people and say, God says such and such the authors do not claim to be prophets sent by God. Instead, they are writing books of fantastical visions and grand spiritual end-time events. This is the theological landscape of the Maccabees. So now we need to go back to our map. Remember that anytime you hear the name of a king, beginning with the word Antioch, any king named Antiochus will be a Seleucid king. In 200 BCE, Antiochus the Great rules Judea, which over this period comes to be called by its Roman name of Palestine. I will use the terms Judea and Palestine interchangeably, so just be forewarned. At this time, Antiochus the Great of Syria is allied with the king of Macedonia, which is over to the west in the bright green. They are Hellenistic kings, having come out of Alexander the Great's empire. The word Hellenistic refers to the culture, political structure, and religion of the Greeks. Greek is already the lingua franca of the world, and these two kings want to aggressively spread the culture, including the pantheistic religion of the Greeks. Part of their plan of Hellenization, of of course, as you might imagine, is to split the world empires up between them so they can rule the world. Rome, however, is not Greek and is not happy that the Macedonian king and Antiochus the Great plan to divvy up the world between them. Tensions between Rome and Antiochus the Great increase until there is outright war. Antiochus the Great, however, has weakened himself by constant wars with the Ptolemies in Egypt, and the Romans are able to soundly beat Antiochus the Great and push him back into Syria. According to Britannica.com, he is forced to agree to pay Rome 15,000 talents every year for 12 years give up all his elephants which were the equivalent of tanks back then give up his navy and send one of his sons to Rome as a hostage and guarantee of his compliance nevertheless as long as he complies there is peace between Syria and Rome the Seleucids govern the Seleucid Empire by dividing it into a couple of large segments, kind of how we divide our own government into states. One of the biggest segments is called Qalae, Qalae Syria. Here's a close-up of the region. Here's Antioch, the capital of the entire Seleucid Empire. It is located in the region called Syria. Jerusalem is off the map to the south. You can just see the upper tip of Palestine here. And you can see the region of Qalisaria spread along the diagonal here. All of these pink regions are part of the Seleucid Empire. We're, We're just zooming in here so we can see something akin to state boundaries. These smaller areas become important to our story because although the Seleucid king's it, sitting up in Antioch governs the entire empire, he appoints local governors for the Quala area, which includes Palestine. This little purple coastal strip is Phoenicia. Phoenicia is important because of its control of the seaports. You'll remember that the ports of Tyre and Sidon played a significant role in the Hebrew Bible. In the Maccabees, it seems to also be under the governorship of Qualisaria. So, okay, enough with the maps. Let's get back to the king, Antiochus the Great. You'll, you may remember that Antiochus the Great has two sons. He's forced to send the younger one, Antiochus IV, to Rome as hostage. That's the son, according to that big, the deal that was made with the Romans that I just showed you. So you, you may remember this part from Daniel chapter 11. Rome holds Antiochus IV hostage for 14 years to ensure his father's cooperation with all that bit about the elephants and the tribute and the ships. When Antiochus the Great dies, however, Seleucid IV ascends to the throne in Syria, and the Romans force him to send his own son Demetrius to them as hostage in place of Antiochus IV. Once released, Antiochus IV doesn't go home, but instead goes to live in Athens. Antiochus IV completely adopts the Greek culture and religion, and he despises Rome, of course. It is here that the story of the Maccabees begins. There are actually four books of the Maccabees, but only the first two are part of the Apocrypha that is accepted as canon by both the Catholic and Orthodox churches. These two books give us insight into important events bridging the end of the Hebrew Bible and the beginning of the New Testament. As with the Hebrew Bible, I'll tell the story chronologically, which means I'll weave the two books together. They both cover the same time period. I started a chart in the reference materials section of your study guide to help you know how the passages align chronologically. And I'll update that chart each week as we make our way through the story that it can be a handy guide for your reading. So you know how to read the passages in the two books so that you get both sides of the story. On a quick side note, if you're reading along, you'll likely be confused by the dates. For example, in chapter one of 1st Maccabees, there's a reference to year 137 of the kingdom of the Greeks. Back in ancient times, dates were usually counted from the reign of a particularly famous king. So what date it is depends on who you're asking, a Greek or a Roman or someone else. We already ran across this throughout the Hebrew Bible, especially in the books of Kings and Chronicles, where a date would be given as in the sixth year of King so-and-so, such-and-such happened. Remember that? Well, all of the ancient nations do their dates that way, and so everybody's year is a different year. In class, just to standardize this, I'll use our equivalent BCE dates, which in this case would be around 175 BCE, but even still it can be confusing when you're reading because the Greek years are counting up and the BCE years are counting down. The Maccabees begin with, begin with, the, with Jerusalem at peace. Onias III is high priest Seleucus IV is king of Syria, and Apollonius is the local governor of Quale-Syria. The Seleucid kings honor the temple, and Seleucus IV, as like the kings before him, pays all the costs of the sacrifices. But then a man named Simon has a dispute with high priest Onias over something having to do with the city market, which Onias controls. It's always money. It's always over money. And Simon can't budge Onias. So Simon goes to Apollonius, who is the governor over Qualisaria. He tells the governor that the temple treasury is overflowing with riches, much more than is needed for the sacrifices, and that excess rightfully belongs to the king. Governor Apollonius reports this to the king and the king sends an official Heliodorus to get the excess funds. When Heliodorus arrives in Jerusalem and asks about the funds, Onias explains that the only fund on hand is for widows and orphans and he has some money on deposit which belongs to a local rich man. Together the funds total 400 talents of silver and 200 talents of gold, far less than what Simon reported. Nevertheless, Heliodorus sets a date to confiscate the money. The city is in an uproar. How can this official just march in here and take the money collected for widows and orphans, not to mention taking money that was held in safe keeping and didn't even belong to the temple in the first place? The people and the priests alike prostrate themselves before God, asking for intervention. When Heliodorus and his guards arrive on the appointed day, God himself appears, furious, armored in gold, and riding a great horse. The horse rears to strike Heliodorus with its front hoofs. At the same time, Two strong, handsome, richly dressed young men appear on either side of Heliodorus and begin beating him. And then as suddenly as they came, the two young men disappear. This dramatic imagery is typical of Second Maccabees. It is hyperbole and apocalyptic and is exactly the sort of imagery that is becoming popular during this time. First Maccabees tends to stick to the historical record with no more embellishment than is usual for ancient writers, but Second Maccabees tends to be over the top with lots of outrageous imagery and elaborate theological justifications. Anyway, at the sight of a furious god on a horse, Heliodorus falls to the ground in a coma and is borne away on a stretcher his friends beg Onias to ask God to have mercy on him. Onias, afraid the king will think this was some sort of a plot against his official, quickly begins to offer sacrifices of atonement for Heliodorus, begging God for his recovery. And Heliodorus recovers. And the two young men reappear and tell Heliodorus that God has spared his life because of the prayers of Ananias. And then the two young men vanish again. Heliodorus offers sacrifices and makes vows to God before he and his guards return to the king. And when the king asks Heliodorus, "Hmm, whom, whom should I send to Jerusalem next? Heliodorus tells him to send his enemies so they can be flogged. Simon, the guy who started all this, is still up to no good. He accuses Onias of plotting against the government. Simon even goes so far as to have some people murdered. At this point, Onias realizes this has become serious and that Simon continues to have the ear of Governor Apollonius. So Onias does an in-run around Governor Apollonius and appeals directly to King Seleucus IV. But there's trouble brewing in Antioch. King Seleucus has had another son, also named Antiochus. And shortly after the birth of this son, Seleucus IV dies. Second Maccabees says he was assassinated by Heliodorus. Yes, the same Heliodorus we just met. Heliodorus declares himself regent of the Seleucid kingdom. Now remember, Seleucus IV's brother, Antiochus IV, is hanging out in Athens. And he's not going to stand for a usurper on the throne. So he returns home, boots Heliodorus, and declares himself co-regent with his baby nephew. That, of course, doesn't last long. Antiochus IV eventually murders his nephew, so he can have the throne entirely to himself. And he names himself Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God in person, which gives you an idea of his outlook on life. It's now 175 BCE. Back in Jerusalem, the high priest's Onias's brother, Jason, with the support of some of the people, bribes the new king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, to award him the priesthood. He promises the king 360 talents of silver, new revenue of 80 talents, and an additional 150 talents if the king will allow a gymnasium to be built in Jerusalem, and will let people hand selected by Jason become citizens of Antioch, which would endow those people with certain rights and privileges. So it's a great way for Jason to bribe and manipulate rich and influential people. The king consents, and as the new high priest, Jason begins an intense campaign to Hellenize Jerusalem. Priests are encouraged to neglect the sacrifices and spend their time wrestling, discus throwing, and competing with the other young men for awards. The men remove the marks of their circumcision, it says. I'm not exactly sure how you would do that, but that's what it says. And they turn their backs on the holy covenant with God. They do everything in their power to become Gentiles. The writer of 2 Maccabees says that it is for this reason that disaster overtakes them. And in the end, the Gentiles they admire so much become their enemies. Jason, of course, is in tight with Simon the troublemaker. Simon, uh, Jason, I'm sorry, sends Simon's brother Menelaus to do business for him and to carry some of the promised money to Antiochus the fourth. But when he gets to Antioch, Menelaus bribes Antiochus IV to make him high priest instead of Jason. Menelaus has no qualifications for the high priesthood at all, but instead has a reputation for cruelty and rage. He wins the priesthood and Jason flees across the Jordan to Amman. It's now 170 BCE. The eunuchs, who are regents in Egypt, make plans to attack Syria and they begin amassing their troops at Pelusium on the Egyptian frontier. But Antiochus IV gets wind of the attack and marches to Pelusium, where he soundly defeats the Egyptians before they even really get started on their campaign. On his way back to Antioch, Antiochus IV arrogantly enters the temple and goes into the holy place itself, taking the golden altar of incense, the golden lampstand, the table of the bread of the presence, and all the golden vessels and utensils. He even rips down the curtain and strips all the gold from the front of the temple. He takes everything and every community in Israel, it says, mourns deeply. Even the land trembles for its inhabitants, and all are shamed. You may ask where these golden vessels and furnishings came from since they've been gone ever since the time of Nebuchadnezzar's raids, But you see every time an enemy raids the temple, the people of Israel make the furnishings and the vessels again. This happens over. And over and over. The only thing that was taken by Nebuchadnezzar that is entirely irreplaceable is the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that held the tablets of the Law of Moses, a jar of manna, and Aaron's staff that had budded. Those have been lost forever. So it's now 169 BCE. The new high priest, Menelaus, fails to pay his promised tribute to Antichus IV, even though the captain of the citadel at Jerusalem, who is the designated tax collector, keeps asking him for the money. Eventually, of course, the king summons both Menelaus and the captain of the citadel to Antioch, so they go, leaving Menelaus's brother, Lysimachus, in charge in Jerusalem. Antioch is north of Palestine, up in Syria near the coast where you see that red star. That's where Antiochus IV has his seat. But while Menelaus is in Antioch being called on the carpet, Antiochus IV suddenly has to leave to go quell a little rebellion somewhere. And he leaves his deputy Andronicus in charge. Well, Menelaus sees a political opportunity here. He has brought with him some gold vessels he's stolen from the temple, and he gives these to Andronicus as a bribe. I'm not entirely sure what for. It doesn't say, but whatever it is, it's illegal and possibly treasonous. Onias, remember him? the guy who used to be high priest at the beginning of the story, well, he's now living in Antioch and serving in a temple at Daphne, which is just like a suburb of Antioch. And he sees what Menelaus and Andronicus have done, and he exposes their treachery. That, of course, infuriates Andronicus. Andronicus hunts Onias down in the temple of Daphne, where he's hiding in sanctuary and persuades him it is safe to come out. Then, of course, Andronicus kills him. When Antiochus IV returns, all the people are in uproar over the murder of Onias, an innocent man. The king strips Andronicus of his purple robe of authority and kills him on the very spot where he murdered Onias. And that, the author of Second Maccabees says, is how the Lord repays Andronicus with the punishment he deserves. So (laughs) you can see what kind of a story this is going to be. There's going to be a Cecil B. DeMille cast of thousands in the Maccabees. And I will try to keep it as clear as possible. There are going to be people and priests and armies and flying everywhere. But um, we're going to stop here for today. And in our breakout groups, we'll talk about that crazy story where God shows up on horseback and two angels beat the living daylights out of Heliodorus for daring to take money from the temple. And we'll talk about the threads of angelology and demonology that are showing up and how they have continued to influence Jewish and Christian theology. You'll see uh, at the top of the study guide that I list the readings for the week. Um, And I also tell you which chapters we we aren't going to cover. I'm not going to cover every last detail in the Maccabees. We'd be here forever. Um, I'm going to cover the stuff that gets us from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament. And um, but I will. Um, tell you the parts that I skipped. I'll tell you which parts I skipped so that you can go back and get them. So I've put a reference chart. um, I've put like a Maccabees chronology chart in the reference materials in your study guide. You can always look there. It shows you what what stuff we're covering in each class. I'll, I'll build it as we go along. So I want us to think about the fact that it's been At the time of the Maccabees, it's been 500 years since Israel fell, that first 10 tribes. 400 more or less since Jerusalem fell. So think about that. 500 years ago, there were no American colonies. This land that we are sitting on belonged to the indigenous people. 500 years ago, our own world was just barely emerging from the Middle Ages. The Protestant Reformation was in its infancy, in its first days. Think about how much our understanding of the world has changed in 500 years. Think how our culture has changed in 500 years. So is it any wonder... That over a similar 500 year span, the Jews began assimilating the world view of the cultures in which they lived. Greek and Persian notions of angels and demons and fights between good and evil were just part of the air they breathed. It was what they lived in. It's what everybody thought. So I want to think about the God on the Horseback study today from Second Maccabees. Three. First of all, how is God portrayed in that story? What are His attributes?
1: Well, He's some sort of a warrior because He's on us.
0: Well, the picture it looked like He was a knight from the Middle Ages. I know. Sorry, they don't do good pictures, and <laughs> the timing is not good. But you're right. He big warrior on a horse, right? Right.
2: Intimidating. But
1: so I'm going to jump. If if that's how he represents himself, who are the two dudes?
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who are the two dudes? Angels. Angels. That's what I would think. Yeah. Because always through the Hebrew Bible, we've seen angels show up as men, right? They uh-huh. just look like men. Sometimes they look like warriors. Sometimes they look like important rich men. And, and occasionally we've seen glimpses of them from a spiritual point of view, which has been far scarier, (laughs) but in this case, they have shown up as two richly dressed young men, which is not at all out of the ordinary for, for angels in the Hebrew Bible, but think about the angels in this story. What were they doing in this story?
2: I don't see angels
0: parsoning out judgment. I don't know. I think that, that certainly can y'all think of times where we've seen angels parceling out judgment?
3: Well, wasn't that who closed? Was it the angel of God and the, the Egyptians that stopped them from crossing the,
0: getting the Israelites? that's true and also in the prophets um we have seen ezekiel especially we saw um angels show up and of course of course now ezekiel is looking at a spiritual view of this thing right okay but when ezekiel saw angels come there were angels sent out to do destruction in his visions I'm hard-pressed to think of any places and well think of, think early in our stories there were some angels um, during Abraham's time Sodom and Gomorrah Sodom yeah now think about how those angels acted during that but what, what were they sent to do
1: do you remember what God sent them to do to Sodom and Gomorrah to do
0: destroy it right yeah yeah right yeah but while they were there remember how they protected lot Mm -hmm. right um and they and they didn't do it by killing the men they did it by blinding them and throwing them into confusion remember that Mm -hmm. that so there seems i don't know in my mind kind of a difference between being sent to do something at a global level you know and beating the crap out of some poor guy on the ground i remember it it, could it be balaam in the ass that you're thinking of where where balaam was, was on his donkey and he was and he was going um he was going he had been hired to curse the israelites and it, and an angel stood in front of him with a sword and wouldn't let him go by. And the donkey saw it first, and then finally, finally Balaam saw it. Um, and and so it was, uh, you shall you shall not pass, you know, kind of
4: Yeah, that, that doesn't sound like the one I'm thinking of. But I'm sorry, I can't
0: remember the names mm-hmm. of, of what I am of thinking. the characters so, you're thinking of the story you're thinking about. Yeah, sorry.
2: Well, and also in this story. God is there on horseback. I, why are the two? If we're going to call them angels,
1: why would they be there
2: doing what they're doing to the guy?
0: Because
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I can't say any of those names. <laughs> wasn't it,
3: wasn't it maybe because of the the cultural time the king would show up in chariot or on a horse or something and say you know to his men. Take care of this dude.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So that what? his, his I don't know what they would be at that time, warriors or lieutenants or whatever. He would order them to do the dirty work and not get his hands dirty.
1: What if the dudes were imaginary because somebody can't be beaten up by one person? It has to be a mob in, when they retell the story. I'm st- see angels doing God's dirty work if God's sitting there on the
0: horse that's that's where I'm Mm stopped well there is the concept throughout the Hebrew Bible of God being the Lord of hosts there is the concept of there being an army with God remember the the sound of the army rustling through the tops of the trees at one point um there is that sense um these guys weren't dressed up as soldiers though they were just two angels i mean i'm totally with you guys <laughs> you know i'm just it just is a very i can think of things similar to it in the hebrew bible but it doesn't have the same flavor right
2: Well, i have another question mm-hmm. you mentioned these two men were dressed in finery as riches could that be symbolic of the money at mm. the temple Ooh, you i hadn't thought that of
0: that retrieve absolutely it absolutely could i hadn't thought of that at all yeah so i don't know what do you, i'm i read this story and i and i feel uncomfortable <laughs> you know it just Always when God showed up in the Hebrew Bible, God would show up as a, an important man like he did to Abraham and otherwise God would show up as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, right? mm mm-hmm. So, sorry. I was just saying, this just seems so embroidered to me. Correct. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, if this were a
1: TV show, I would be waiting to find out that it actually wasn't God and that it was a, you know, a disguise to turn everything around, but that doesn't work. Right. <laughs> you know,
0: it just, it's, it's like, I can see the shift. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. In the Hebrew Bible, God always told his people, when you build an altar to me, don't build one like all the other nations do. Don't cut the stones. Don't cover them in gold. Don't do a bunch of fancy footwork on my altar. Just go get plain old stones and stack them up. That's what kind of God we saw in the Hebrew Bible. And that's not what this guy on the horse Sounds like to me.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm playing a little story in my head right now after that thing I just mentioned. And I'm wondering, well, where are we going with the moral of this story? And part of me is seeing these wealthy men, which may represent the money in my head. And someone is there to take them from the widows and orphans and the people who have trusted the church to protect their funds. I guess the church was like the bank then. Yeah, it was. So when this outsider, this person comes to take away that money, then they meet with spiritual resistance or just a a significant resistance that impairs that ability mm-hmm. and it's more like okay the money at the church is important and protect it is the story i'm hearing in my head
0: yeah yeah and the 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 nature of god showing up to protect the widows and the orphans totally tracks right so that's a great segue into the next question, Julia. Because what I'm the ne- my next question then logically would be let's assume we're still talking about God here. All right. Let's assume that here in the Maccabees, in this story from 2nd Maccabees, God shows up regardless of the trappings that the author has put on this you know regardless of the, the 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 story part like you say the the moral of the story is god shows up to protect the widows and the orphans so my next question is looking ahead how is this how can we foresee this cultural shift affecting how jesus shows up in the world in the new testament
1: so instantly as julia was talking and then as you just asked that instantly i recall jesus turning over the tables in tabernacle Mm -hmm. in the temple Mm -hmm. what i see from jesus is that he rejects mean he takes tax collectors and I want to say crooked people and turns them into disciples and so maybe yeah
0: yeah and what about Renee did you have something
3: you were talking about how God wants his temple to be for lack of a better word humble Yeah, not and ostentatious. So when you look at how God basically represents himself, because he comes to individuals, he doesn't come to huge groups of wealthy people, or, you know, he comes to the, the less than people. All along in the Old Testament, Jesus did the same thing. He came very humbly, and he didn't seek out the wealthy or the powerful or the the high religious people. He came for the people, the lower.
0: Yes. And so that
3: kind of shows this kind of this, this, this trappings they added was trying to
0: make God like any other King on earth. Yes. And so, so think about when God is coming to the people, as you say, he's coming to the underbelly, right? What, do those people believe now about angels and demons and all these things
4: i wonder how important is it in that story that um gosh uh, like herodotus whatever his name was heliodorus heliodorus survived and he survived because the priest prayed for him or offered sacrifices for him or whatever And all of those are kind of interesting that he survives and and is able to go back to the king in in Antioch. Mm -hmm. Now that's sort of interesting.
0: It is. That sounds very godlike, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they didn't. He didn't kill him.
4: He just sort of taught him a lesson.
0: (laughs) And Heliodorus goes back and says, "You send somebody. Send your enemies next time." (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, God, God, and these two men show up. To prevent Heliodorus, who is representing the Seleucid king, from taking the money that belonged to the widows and the orphans. And that sounds like Yahweh. I mean, that sounds like something Yahweh would do, you know, and does consistently. What I'm wanting and what I'm really wanting to highlight is the different layers of the story that we have clearly Yahweh showing up in ways that we we know that's that's God and that but on top of it we've got this veneer of God on a horse and angels dressed up in finery and beating people and and all kinds of stuff and I'm and what I'm wanting to think about is that that two-layered view of God continues and some of those trappings kind of grow sure from this point forward all right and so by the time that we reach the time of jesus like renee is saying is pointing out when god comes when jesus (laughs) comes to the people who are on the underbelly of society they will they will recognize god when god touches them at the core this 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 Unchangeable right. part, but they're going to speak the language of and only understand God in terms of their cultural understanding. See what I'm saying?
1: Yes, yes. It, I have I have an example for you for that. Okay, from from the previous English teacher who taught folklore. Um, every civilization has a version of Disney, or I mean, of Cinderella. I believe not. they have a version
0: of Disney, yes. yes. <laughs> Maccabees would be <laughs> one.
1: <laughs> and when you read these different versions, the things that happen to the characters, like plucking eyes out, and uh, that's all a cultural thing. And I believe that those variations are put in there because that's what the people understand from their culture and their, their you know, meanings, like you say, of demons and angels that, leads them to the
0: moral of the story exactly and so our hearts are the hearts of a human don't change just the same as the heart of god does not change we connect to god at a heart level but we speak a cultural language we 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 re we Um, And this is something the Eastern uh, Christian Church has long understood with their um, use of icons, paintings. Okay, where where they say let's let's look at this icon, so that so that this layer of our understanding can dissolve so that the words can dissolve so that we're so that so that we can set aside what we think of as culture and reach into the heart so we can connect with god at a heart level other people protestants for example we like to talk we we preach about things and we use words and cultural examples to call forth the heart roots. We we use them as a way to, to connect people with something they understand in their lives or with something that they believe, but always with the idea of that will somehow reach down into this core heart connection where we can help. Music. Woody.
4: Well, I was just going to say that's a that's a great point, and I I, I agree with that. That that uh, the language, the cultural language, um, that, that people would have understood, this had to do with violence and, and beating people up. I mean, if if those two guys dressed in finery had had approached had approached Heliodorus and said, "I say, my good man, uh, there's there's really not uh, any any in the in the uh, I know that wouldn't, wouldn't have understood
0: that. No, it would have made no sense in their mm-hmm. context, right? Okay. And that is exactly what Jesus was born into. Jesus was born into a culture, this culture, I mean, the Romans, right? We're seeing this culture evolving right now. We're within a couple of hundred years now of the time of Christ. And so, when Jesus talks to people, he's going to talk to people using the language of his, cu- his culture. They're going to understand talk of angels and demons and Satan and God because they've been living it for 500 years. You know, this is the, la- the currency, the language of theology for them this is how they make sense of their wor- world by Julie. So, so I think what I'm wanting us to see as we go through, um, the Maccabees is how God shows up actually versus how God is described so that as we get to the new Testament, we are that particular muscle, that particular ability, that particular tool in our toolbox to differentiate those two things has we have muscles for that tool because we're going to need it when we get to the New Testament. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Any other comments or observations, reflections? More backpack tools. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Yep. <laughs> I don't even know. Oh, i don't even know what to call this one i don't know that it has a name but um other than what's out there but it's something i that's really starking, starkly obvious when second maccabees tells a story so um we'll be watching for that
2: you know yeah. uh, when you read the bible and you get to the big words and you skip over them <laughs> um at least i do anyhow when I get to the part with the God on a horse, I'm going to be skimming right on past that because I don't see <laughs> God on
0: a horse. I think that's the cultural. Yeah, well, you're that. not from that culture. It wouldn't speak mm-hmm. to people. Yeah. I wouldn't mm-hmm. tell you this story this way if I was writing it nowadays. I I
5: missed half of the class, so I apologize. if I'm trying to summarize. Kind of what I'm hearing, but it sounds like from this point on is how a lot of the dualistic talk originated in what now our Christian culture thinks of it's black or white, is heaven or hell, is God or the devil? But if the Apocrypha is not in what a lot of this Christians nowadays read, how come that's still such a a relevant topic, I mean, I feel like if this is where it originated, is it because then that's passed on to the New Testament, and that's how we approach
0: and read the New Testament? That is a fabulous question Thank you so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this kind of dualistic thinking did not originate in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha reflects the culture during the intertestamental period, which is where this kind of dualistic thinking originates. All right. And, and comes to fruition as an embellished and the Greeks have one version and the Romans have another version and the Persians have another version. You know, um, it, it is the, that period is where those that kind of thinking originates and why it is so important to, study the apocrypha is because you can really see the roots of it you can see it really clearly in the apocrypha in these stories without the apocrypha and i understand why people don't study the apocrypha because the stories are like you know tobit in the fish guts you know i understand that but but without the apocrypha we as protestants jump from the God of the Hebrew Bible in that context, slap over into the New Testament with all its angelology and demonology with no understanding of why there's a difference. And what we do is we reverse engineer God from the New Testament. So we, we as Christians tend to take If all we study is the New Testament, the New Testament, and we reverse engineer what we think God and evil and good and Satan and angels and demons are like, and we assume that what we're reading in the New Testament, those cultural elements, those dualistic elements are what God is, because we didn't bother to go back and actually read the Hebrew Bible and the apocrypha now i'm not saying that forces of good and evil don't exist i'm not saying that angels don't exist all i'm saying is that when we use those kinds of words angels and demons and spiritual hierarchies and things we are operating in that upper cultural level we are personifying and anthropomorphizing good the forces of good and evil all right there is evil in the world there is also good in the world when we use words like casting out demons and we are we are we are operating in a cultural binary that is rooted here in this intertestamental period. I want us to always recognize that and be able to to dwell in the core where God is and not to get confused by the language, not to build theology out of the language, you know, but to really understand that God is with us and there is no power greater period. The end.
3: So when Jesus pulled out the evil spirits, the demons out of
0: people, he was just healing their mental illness. He, he was healing people. He was healing people in whatever way they needed healing. People, people, with mental illness and physical illness, aren't broken, all right, but when they asked, when they said, Lord, I am broken, I need to be healed, Jesus w- looked at the heart, and the byproduct of the healing and wholeness that Jesus generated in their lives and in their body, the byproduct was the Im- impact on their bodies, and that was interpreted by the people who were writing the stories as, "Oh, look, he cast out a demon!" Wow. But what he did was was he just filled them up. He healed the broken places, but at whatever they were and wherever they were, in whatever way that person offered themselves to him for healing.
4: So if the demonology and angelology, I love that word, uh, and and the spiritual hierarchy and all that, that's all sort of the cultural uh, overlay of the New Testament era, and that started during the Enter what enter Testamentals. If it started during that period, how would you summarize the earlier period of the Hebrew Bible?
0: Uh, how try to say, say that that last part again in another way.
4: Well, if if I mean I, as I understand it, which may not be much, um, the the angelology and demonology really was not prevalent or maybe didn't exist during the Old Testament, oh, I'm sorry, the Hebrew Bible era. Right. Um, the, what, what, was the, what, was the, what were the dominant themes?
0: Okay. That, yeah, that's what I thought you were asking, but I just want to be sure. Okay. So in the Hebrew Bible, God and God alone was the driving force and God had messengers who were called angels the same word that is the word for angel is messenger in Hebrew okay and so God had messengers who talked to God's people those were the angels. God also sent prophets, you know, who were like regular humans. And um, um, and there is in the Hebrew Bible, a sense that God is attended in his throne room by angels. Okay. That there is a heavenly court. You know where that comes from? Mesopotamian culture. All right. I just, I just thought of something else
4: too, that, that in the Hebrew Bible, as we've studied, uh, God God controlled everything he did both the, the good and the, and, the, and the harm
0: that's right uh, that's why Job was in such a pickle trying to right. figure it all out right
4: and, and so I can see now that it's a sort of a different cultural or, a, or theological different theology different theology that no oh, there's this good which is God but there's this not good this evil which is not God
0: right right and how do we deal with this so in the hebrew bible the only way to deal with it was humility before god Mm. and letting god deal with it when we get and and that to me is closer to right (laughs) you know um i think that that is the core I think the whole idea of angels and a heavenly court and all that stuff, that is part of the Mesopotamian and Canaanite theology. That was where the the culture that the writers of that Hebrew Bible lived in. Okay. So am I saying there are no angels? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that God meets us in whatever culture we're born in. In whatever way we can understand, but the bottom line is there is only God.
4: Okay, I may, I may ask about that. There is only God. But just a minute ago, you said there is evil in the world. Mm-hmm. Where does that evil come from?
0: I cannot answer that. The Hebrew Bible explains it as coming from our, our, our hearts, which yearn for evil. Well, you know, okay, and, and and I, and, I, and well, let me and and there are philosophers and theologians who spend like Simone v- Ve, who sees um, evil as simply as happening at creation because God draws back in order to create an im something that is imperfect, and so evil enters the world. We have all kinds of explanations for why there is evil. My, I can give you my personal one. And my personal one is that evil exists because we have free will and that God created us to have free will. God created us in God's own image and that God created us for the purpose of having communion with us, of having a back and forth, of us being Something besides God, you know. And that, and my personal view, this is just my personal view, is that this season of us running completely amok, <laughs> uh, with God continually trying to get us back on track and back with with the program, you know, back to being near to God, we don't have to be evil. We don't have to be evil. We don't have to do evil. That is a lie. All right. And God has continually given us ways to draw close to God. I think that this season of God trying all these zillions of ways will come to an end. And there will be no no more evil. I, I think that at some point, something will happen. The Messiah will come and we will understand. We will get it. But even there's even there is a verse, which I don't like to hang theology on a verse. But there is a verse in the New Testament that says, in the end, Jesus will hand all things over to I think that if you believe in a God who is described, the Yahweh described in in these texts, you believe in a God who is the beginning and end of all things, including us. Can I wrap my head around that? No, I don't understand how our personalities continue. I know that they do. do i I, do i know that it is the most wonderful and biggest blessing that we beyond what we could ever imagine absolutely i think i cannot wait for that time to come i do not know why god tarries i do not know why god allows tears among the wheat as the farmer images in the New Testament say. I do know that in the end, God. Those are good
2: questions, Woody.
3: Yeah.
2: Good question. And thank you,
5: Gail. It kind of reminds me of what we talked about last week of there's so much about God that we can't describe with words. And so I'm wondering if the opposite of Our attempt to make sense of what we can't ever describe or make sense is by then limiting and putting evil and talking about evil as a way to help us cope and understand what isn't able to be understood or described
0: there is absolutely nothing wrong with using your words and your culture to help you understand what's going on as long as you don't confuse this part with god Mm. and and as long as you never forget that god is good god is completely trustworthy. We can just hold on. We can just take the next best step, do our best to love ourselves and each other and trust God. That's all I got. So those are Tough questions, guys. I'm going to have to put you back in your study group. So y'all have <laughs> <those tough> questions. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Love y'all. Bye,
1: y'all.
0: Love Bye. you. Bye.
3: Bye.